This is episode 140 of the Dear Discreet Guide podcast. This episode is titled, Howard Bloom, Rock and Roll Spinmeister. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm so thrilled to welcome a new guest to the show today. Howard Bloom is with me with his new book, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. And I'll introduce him. He's got a fascinating background. He was a music publicist in the 1970s and 80s, which is our topic for today for all kinds of singers and bands, Prince, Billy Joel, and Sticks. He's also written a bunch of books that I hope we'll also get to. He became interested in science, especially cosmology and microbiology at a young age and ended up doing some research work at a cancer institute. He graduated from New York University and then veered off from science to go work as an editor for a rock magazine and would go on to found one of the largest public relations firms in the music industry. And just to give you a sense here, I will read off a bunch of names for you. Michael Jackson, Cindy Lauper, Talking Heads, Lionel Richie's Easy Top, Bette Midler, ACDC, Simon Garfunkel, John Mellencamp, who we're going to get to talk about today, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Kiss, and Bob Marley's Uprising Tour. And uh, there's a great quote here from Billy Joel, who says he's the public relations spinmeister. I uh, love that. So welcome to the show, Howard. Thanks, Jennifer. And I like your uh, focus on work. As a dedicated workaholic, I appreciate it. Yeah, actually, I was thinking uh, that would be a fun thing for us to talk about is just I could see how hard you worked from your book and even on the book. So let's let's start to set the stage for the readers, because a lot of rock and roll books are really about kind of vicarious thrills about sex and drugs. And you include some of that because that's, you know, part of the territory. A lot of the book is just about plain hard work. You also talk about strategic publicity, which I really loved. But how much do you think you just outworked your competition that led to your success? It's a very good question because I did work, at least it was my impression that I was working 17-hour days, seven days a week. Wow. I was probably only working 12 to 14-hour days, seven days a week. I worked for eight years straight without taking a vacation. But there's a strategic guidance to what you do. You can waste your time working. The hours that you put in are not the answer to success. The answer to success is absorbing the industry you're in, caring deeply about the audience, wanting to basically... Okay, I have a book called The Genius of the Beast, A Radical Revision of Capitalism. And it says that there is a hidden mandate in capitalism that most capitalists don't realize. And it's save, lift, upgrade, and empower your neighbor if you save, lift, and upgrade one person, you got a dollar, a hundred people, you got a hundred dollars, a hundred million people, you got a hundred million dollars. And that was my goal. You have to deeply love your audience. You have to really want to serve them with all your heart and soul. 
as if you were their shepherd and they are your flock. And you have to be smart. You have to ingest everything you can about your industry. And where the smartness comes in, it's a magic ingredient. And I can't exactly define it. You have to be able to simplify things and, and simplify things in a way that you out-deliver your competition. In my case, I out-delivered my competition 10 to 100 to 1. Yeah, I think we're going to get uh, to talk a little bit more about marketing and so forth. I'm really anxious to talk to you about. But let's start off talking about John Mellencamp. Since I'm from Bloomington, Indiana, of course, that whole section was very amusing to me. I think you talk about going into this green, green, green landscape when you went to visit him. And also, I think you mentioned that there's some giant beetle that showed up on your window. And I was just uh, cracking up reading all that. I was like, yep, he was definitely in Indiana. <laughs> it was John Mellencamp who uh, brought you out there. And, and when you came, became involved with him, I think he was still known as Johnny Cougar. Yes. Which was highly amusing to those of us who had known him from the beginning. And so tell us how you kind of moved him from not being very well respected, even despised by the critics as Johnny Cougar, to really being, you know, taken as a very serious artist. Okay, first you have to understand my technique. It took me many years to develop it. I called it secular shamanism. And yes, I was a person with a science background. I got into microbiology and theoretical physics at the age of 10. I began to acquire serious scientific credentials at the age of 12, of all things. But I realized that I wanted to find the passions very deep inside of us. I wanted to find what I called the gods inside of us. I wanted to find the ecstatic experience. So my immersion in rock and roll was a scientific expedition into the forces of history. And more important, it was a search for soul in the power pits of rock and roll. So when John's manager's assistant came to me about working for John, I made a simple speech. And I said, if you expect me to fashion an artificial image for you and then to sit back like a guy in a plaid suit tapping a cigar and tell you, kid, I'm going to make you a star with this. And I'll send you my best competition. I do not make artificial masks. I do not make images. If you're going to work with me, you have to understand that music is not about an exchange of pieces of plastic. Back then, all the records were made of vinyl. It is not an exchange of downloads. It is not an exchange of money. It is an exchange of human soul. And if you're going to work with me, I will spend six weeks reading every lyric you have ever written, looking at every album cover you've ever put out, and reading every story that's ever been written about you. Then I will come out to see you in your own environment with no wives, no managers, no intercessors of any kind, just you and me. What am I looking for? Well, when you have an album due and you sit down at two o'clock in the afternoon in front of a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen to write a lyric and you feel that you, can, you can't possibly write a lyric, you have no idea of how you've ever written a lyric in the past. And two hours later, there's a lyric in front of you. I'm going to find the gods inside of you that wrote that lyric for you. When you go on stage and you see the faces of the audience melt and you see their eyes grow wide and you see their pupils dilate growing wider and wider and you see that audience come together like a giant amoebic blob of common energy and you see that amoebic blob reaching the pseudopod out to you like a tunnel and funneling the energy of anywhere from 700 to 70,000 people through you as if you were an empty pipe and you see that energy going to something around your head being utterly transformed, transmogrified and flowing back out to that audience again, widening their eyes even farther. 
that feedback loop and you feel like you are on the ceiling watching all of this take place, that your body is being danced like a marionette, like a puppet, I'm going to find the gods inside of you that danced you in your 70 minutes on stage. Um, and if you're willing to accept that, then I'll work with you. Otherwise, no, no deal. So I made those demands of John Mellencamp. It took me years to develop secular shamanism and to develop that approach to doing things. And I went out to see John Mellencamp in his home territory. Well, first I studied what had happened with John. John went to David Bowie's manager, Tony DeFries. I mean, he, he had every manager in a record company he possibly could with his music. And everybody was turning him down for good reason. He was doing cover songs. Mm -hmm. People wanted because in the record industry, you need to hear original music. And the idea that he might have to write his own music came as a total shock to mm -hmm. John. And one day he went, he took his car and he drove into New York City. And one of the artists he admired the most was David Bowie. And Tony DeFries, David Bowie's manager, took total credit for making David Bowie what he was. He felt that he had made David Bowie what he was by changing his name from David Jones to David Bowie. Big contribution, right? It's not the, the only success. So most managers are not as bright as they think they are. Um, they're not really responsible for the successes they take credit for. These are accidents. So he was waiting around in the waiting room and nobody was going to see him. And finally, he left his cassette with the um, receptionist. Well, he was in luck. The receptionist was from Indiana. Yeah, right. She listened to that tape. And she brought it to Tony DeFree's attention. And Tony, John was a good-looking guy, and Tony was probably gay. So Tony signed him. And so Tony, you know the secret to David Bowie's success was changing his name, right? <laughs> Apparently. So Tony DeVries was going to pull another active genius with John Mellencamp. And he changed his name to Johnny Cooper. And then he did something remarkably destructive. I mean, it sounds good in theory but it was absolutely the wrong thing to do. He got together with the editor of a public, a very hip publication called Radio and Records, who the editor knew everybody who was anybody in the music industry. And the two of them put together a coffee table book with one page each and all of the members of what was called the rock crit elite, the key rock critics in the country. Now, reaching the key rock critics with John Mellencamp's music would have been extremely significant. It would have helped tremendously, but that's not what they were doing. They didn't realize it, but they were antagonizing everybody they put into that coffee table book because it made these journalists feel as if they were being bought. Sure. And they hate being bought. So they hated John Mellencamp. They reviewed his albums without ever listening to them. And they said his albums were piles of shit. They reviewed his personality without ever meeting him. They said he was a pile of shit. Now, admittedly, John Mellencamp was a difficult person. Mm -hmm. When he was a child, um, his neighbors had a very hard time, kids his age, coming out of their house and going to the school bus because John was hurling rocks at them. John could be vicious. Mm -hmm. John is also one of the brightest, most insightful people I've ever met in my life. And the critics didn't know that. So this first move, this open salvo by Tony DeFries, alienated every major critic in America to John Mellencamp. So the big question is, was John Cougar Mellencamp authentic? Was there something about him that was real, real, real? One day I, had, I was out in California. I was driving in my rental car on Sunset Boulevard. A song came on the radio and Jennifer, this is the only time this has ever happened to me or anything like it in my life. 
That song got to me in such a fundamental and basic manner that I couldn't drive anymore. So I pulled my car over into a parking space as quickly as I could because I was a danger on that road and, and just listened to the rest of that song. It was Hurt So Good mm-hmm. by John Mellencamp. Mm-hmm. And that happened months before John's management approached me about working with John. And when I made these demands, studying him for six weeks, going out to wherever he was in his environment, being having at least one day with him face to face with nobody else around looking for the gods inside of him. The manager said, no, we won't allow that. Um, if you're ever going to be with him, there's going to be a manager in the room. And then the manager called John, and John said, if that's the way he does things, let him do it. Mm-hmm. I started to work with John Mellencamp. And when I flew out to Indiana, after having read all of his lyrics and done all of my homework, and we sat, you know, he put me up in his bedroom. The house was very strange. When you pulled up in the driveway, there was no house. You couldn't see a house. All you could see was trees and a garage. And the garage had cars and motorcycles. And one day when I pulled up to the house, there was a tiny little $15 grill for hamburgers, charcoal grill, like you get from Kmart or something like that, or these (laughs) days like Walmart. And John and one of his best friends from high school in Seymour, Indiana, were sitting there grilling hamburgers. But there was no house. Jennifer, I was (laughs) supposed to be visiting John at his house, and there is no house. Well, it turns out, there's a little thing that looks like a tool shed and you walk into it and it turns out to be the top floor of the house or the entry to the top floor. And you walk down the stairs and you're in the attic of the house. You walk further down the stairs, you're in the second floor of the house. You walk further down and you're in the first floor of the house. So it turns out that this house falls down the hillside like a waterfall. And you're right. I he put me up in his bedroom, fed me dinner, put me up in a spare bedroom. His wife was wonderful. She was the daughter of a stunt actor, and she had learned all the stunt actor moves. So one day when she was on a set and the stunt actor who was supposed to do a car flip where the car does a 360-degree flip around and lands on its tires, the, the stunt driver who was supposed to do that hadn't shown up. She was 15 years old. She volunteered. <laughs> pulled off the maneuver. So his wife was a spunky little person, Vicky. She was terrific. And John and I sat in his living room with the door closed, and I got the story of John's life out of him. And indeed, I found the story of the gods inside of him. Mm-hmm. And at four o'clock in the afternoon, we started at nine o'clock in the morning. At four o'clock in the afternoon, John was drained. There mm-hmm. was scarcely any personality left in this hollow husk of a body. He was just, it wouldn't be the first time I'd see John in this condition, by the way, because performing on stage reduced him to this kind of condition where he looked like a scarecrow with no person inside the scarecrow. And I, I went back to New York. I organized the story so that it was in chronological order and made a coherent story. And I sent it back to John and I said, this is the most important thing you have to say uh, to journalists. So uh, memorize it. It's all your own words and tell it to every journalist that you meet because it is a remarkable, astonishing story. And the essence of the story was that John was a big guy in his high school. Mm-hmm. He was the leader pack in his high school. He was the little tough guy in his high school. Nobody could be better than John or, or more outrageous and rebellious than John. And he showed me two movies by um, Paul Newman. One was HUD and the other one was uh, Cool Hand Luke. Mm-hmm. And those are the movies he had grown up on. That's how, what he imagined himself to be. The big face on a small screen. Well, actually on a big screen. 
the star, like Paul Newman. Mm-hmm. Then he graduated high school, and he became so depressed he could barely put on his socks in the morning. And I knew that condition. I had gone through that, too, at one point. Why? Because he had gone from being the big face on a big screen to being a pixel on a big screen, to being invisible, to having no no way of gaining other people's attention or any control over his own life. And that experience for him was formative. And he told me the stories of growing up as a teenager in Seymour and getting into their cars and going off to a different town and just for the hell of it, just for the fun of it, having fist fights with the local guys and picking up the local girls and making out with the local girls and doing anything more they could possibly do with the local girls. And that was John's life. And that's the life that showed up in songs like Jack and Diane Mm -hmm. or Hurt So Good. So I went about explaining to people John's validity, this authentic story of authentically growing up in Indiana in a way that the rest of us could relate to, but none of us had quite grown up that way. Mm -hmm. And, And also, John is one of the most astonishing performers you have ever seen in your life. When I made, gave you that description of having that out-of-body experience and seeing yourself as an empty pipe and a puppet, a marionette on stage, that's what John went through. It was the ecstatic experience I had been seeking since I was 12 or 13 years old. It was extraordinary. So when John came off the stage, once again, he looked totally hollowed out, like there was no person left in him. Why? He'd been a hollowed pipe for 18,000 people mm-hmm. with the souls of 18,000 people flowing through him. And with the Godhead, whatever that is, transmogrifying things within him. And the gods inside of him actually transmogrifying things. And now he was empty of all of those things. And it took an hour for John's personality to come back. He would hide in a little tiny room. Only Vicky was with him or only I was with him. And waiting for the hello, how are you, fine, thank you very much personality of everyday life to return after this visitation by the gods inside after being marionetted, puppeteered by the gods inside, impassioned by the gods inside. And he was one of the most remarkable performers I'd ever seen. So I sat press person after press person after press person down for lunch and told them John's story. The former president of Atlantic Records and former president of Polygram Records has got a book called Stumbling Into Geniuses. And it, it's got three pages of interview with me. And um, it's Danny Goldberg who wrote it. And Danny says that for Howard Bloom, John Mellencamp was a religion. And he was. I believed in everything John Mellencamp had told me passionately, passionately. But for three years, I sat these critics down, same people who had felt bought off by uh, Tony DeFries's big blunder, his giant blunder, mm-hmm. and told them who John Mellencamp really was, and they didn't believe it. And then... One day, John Mellencamp came into New York City to play at Radio City Music Hall, very high prestige venue. And I had all the critics there between myself, publicity person, Sherry Ring. We had gotten everybody there. And John was what he always is, an absolute cannonball on stage, explosive on stage. And we had a little reception. It wasn't a little reception. It was a big reception in a room beneath the, uh, the the room that had the auditorium. And it was all plush, red uh, walls, fuzzy satin or whatever that stuff is that's fuzzy. <laughs> it was very posh. And every single, well, actually three of the major critics 
who were the leaders among the critics and who had been the most resistant to John did the same thing with me. They walked up to me, grabbed me by the biceps. They put their faces within 12 inches of mine and they said, you were right. Mm. You were right. You were right. It was astonishing. It was a total turnaround. And did hard work have something to do with it? You bet your tail. Hard work had something to do with it. But the actual validity of John Mellencamp and his experience and his way of expressing it through his art was crucial. And his ability to go ecstatic on stage, his ability to let the gods inside of him take over totally. Those are the things that have made him one of the most significant figures I've ever met in my life. And and I've worked with Michael Jackson, Prince Bob Marley, Bette Midler, uh, Billy Joel, Paul Simon, Gabriel, all the people that you mentioned, Queen. And, and there's one person who stands head and shoulders above even Mellencamp, who, who in his own way was three times as big a personality as Mellencamp. But Mellencamp's one of the most important people I've ever met, one of the most important people I've ever taught, and one of the most important people who's ever taught me. It brought such memories back for me, uh, not only about Mellencamp, but so many other people. I kept running, having to run off to YouTube to watch these videos of people that you would talk about. One of them was uh, Commander Cody. And it was like, oh, oh yeah, God. Commander ah. Cody. So I had to run off to YouTube and just stumbled across a, a video with him. And who showed up but Nicolette Larson. So I kept having these funny experiences like that. But there was one thing that I wanted to find once you mentioned it. Right. Was that there was a reference in your book that you had debated Jennifer Norwood of the, oh, yeah. of the PMRC. Yes, I couldn't actually find the video for that, but tell us who the PMRC were and how did that all come about? It was about 1984, roughly, and uh, some three very powerful women in Washington got together and decided that uh, music was pornographic and it was promoting sex and violence and there was too much overt sexuality by the way, Jennifer, if you looked at the music of 1984 and compared it to the overt sexuality <laughs> of the music, it like children's songs. <laughs> right. Um, there's so much more overt sexuality in music today that it's absolutely ridiculous. So these women were being, actually, they were being puppeteered. They were being puppeteered by the forces of the Christian far right. And the forces of the Christian far right had made up a lot of horse puppy about rock and roll music. They claimed, for example, that all the rock stars that you know and I know, Sticks, Ario Speedwagon, both of whom were my clients, Kiss, that they were all Satanists mm -hmm. and that all sacrificed babies to Satan before they went on stage. Babies. And they, and they all had hidden lyrics, subliminal lyrics in their albums and in their songs, trying to convert innocent teenagers to Satanism, the worship of the devil. And Jennifer, how much of this do you think is true? I mean, for example, they said Styx is named Styx because Styx, of course, in Greek mythology was a river in hell. So that stood for their Satanism. It was a quiet tip off for their Satanism. Kiss stood for knights in service to Satan. Oh, right. And there was well, one I about there was one about ACDC that was totally ACDC bizarre. Also, for, for Antichrist devils children. Oh right, sure. 
And, and so they had sold Jennifer Norwood and, and Tipper Gore and Susan Baker on, on this concept. Mm-hmm. It was utterly and completely phony. So just to clarify, so Tipper Gore was Al Gore's wife and Susan yeah. Baker was, um, was his name Howard Baker? James Baker. James Baker. Mm-hmm. So connected women, right? Very well. I mean, James Baker was one of the most brilliant men in Washington. He was Treasury Secretary. I think he was Secretary of State. I'm not quite sure. But he held three different cabinet positions, major, major cabinet positions in his time because he was brilliant. And of Mm -hmm. course, he was powerful. That meant that Susan Baker, his wife, had power. And Jennifer Norwood was the wife of a real estate mogul, but she threw the best parties in Washington. So everybody in the political class, the political elite, came to her parties. So these were not just well-connected women. But Susan Baker and Tipper Gore's husbands had the power to put every one of the six major record companies out of business. Yeah. Why? Because they all owned television stations like CBS. They all owned radio stations. And the FCC could shut them down at any minute and put them out of business. Right. And just what the FCC could do, there was a company called RKO. It had started as RKO Pictures. And it had made some of the classics, the Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire movies. Absolutely King Kong. The classic movies had been RKO movies. And then it had expanded and owned television stations and radio stations. The FCC, on grounds I do not know, withdrew all of their licenses. And that put RKO, a major, major old company, out of business entirely. So Susan Baker and Tipper Gore, for all practical purposes, had demonstrated what they could do. They could put you out of business. Mm-hmm. And they formed a group called the PMRC, the Parents Music Resource Center. Sounds innocent, right? Yeah. Just an information source. Well, if you got their press kit, it was two inches thick. One of the fattest press kits I've ever seen in my life. And there was an article by this guy who sounded like a legitimate academic. He, uh, uh, as none of them were PhD or MD or anything like that. He was pretending to be a credentialed academic. And his article was the one that laid out all of what I've just told you. The Knights mm-hmm. in Service to Satan, the Antichrist, Devil's Children, the reason Sticks was named Sticks, uh, the sacrifices of children uh, or babies um, before each rock and roll show. So these women of power were distributing this totally illegitimate horse bucky nonsense, appalling fantasies. And they were trying to get labels on records saying that the the music had overt sexuality or it had overt violence or something like that. Now, here's the difficulty. In those days, record stores were in malls. In those days, we have, today we have downloads. And in malls, you sign a lease that says that you will not sell anything pornographic. Why? Because the people who built that mall don't want it going downhill like some, some slum part of town where all the sleazy triple X rated stores and movie theaters are. So that meant that if there was a label on a record that said that it contained overt sexuality, explicit sexuality, you could not carry that record. Right. That meant all the record stores in America, all the Tower Records, which was the big chain of the day. They could not carry your records. And that meant your record, why put it out? Nobody was going to be able to find it and buy it. 
So while it sounded like an innocent maneuver, I mean, we all want to know what's in our Campbell's soup, for example. Yes, we want to know there's a high degree of salt in it. Maybe we should avoid it if we're salt intolerant. And they were claiming they were labeling records in the same way, which sounds totally legitimate. But they were not. It was really a move toward censorship. Right. So I put together two friends and sat them down for lunch and explained what the PMRC was up to and said we were going to have to create a counterforce. Mm-hmm. And the two friends were Bob Guccione Jr., who had founded Spin Magazine and was a very close friend of mine, and David Krebs, who managed uh, Aerosmith, and Ted Nugent, and ACDC, and who was another close friend of mine. These were two very, very smart people. So we formed a group called the Parents. Uh, we formed a group. We didn't form the PMR for Norwood. And, uh, Jennifer Norwood was the spokesperson for the group. Tipper Gore was really the highest profile name. She's the one I remember from that era. Yeah, Yeah, that it was. But of course, the media was focused on her. Right. And um, so we formed a group called Music in Action, MIA. That was Bob Guccione Jr.'s idea. And uh, Jennifer Norwood and I would go toe to toe on several occasions on television. Mm -hmm. She would make arguments which were totally phony baloney based Mm -hmm. on us. But she was an attractive woman and she seemed a little, she, she seemed very, very competent. And so everything she said sounded very credible. It's just that none of it, none of it was true. And then one day I, um, I had been visiting the Scorpions in Hanover, Germany, one of my clients, and I flew back to New York and I got back to my office at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. And since I worked 17 hour days, seven days a week, that was a beginning of a work day for me. And when I got back to my office to put in three hours of work, there was a copy of the Hollywood Reporter on my desk, mm-hmm. obviously put there so I would see it the minute I got it. <laughs> uh-huh. And it had a six-column headline on the front cover saying the PMRC tried to put Howard Bloom out of business. I had never merited even a story in the Hollywood Reporter before, although I'd won a whole bunch of awards. And by now I had the biggest PR firm in the music industry and Billboard's Guide to Music Publicity would contain 20 pages just on me and on my technique, which I call perceptual engineering. Still, I didn't feel feel I merited a cover on The Hollywood Reporter. The the PMRC had sent a secret letter to the heads of the six biggest record companies, basically saying, there's this irritant, this thorn in our side, and his name is Howard Bloom, Mm -hmm. and implying that if you want to keep your FCC licenses and keep your television stations and radio stations, then you will get rid of Howard Bloom. And somebody, I think it was my greatest enemy in the business, had a habit of leaking documents, which would come in handy for him later on, Michael Jackson. And I believe it was he who leaked this document and saved my butt, Jennifer. He saved my butt. So um, sometimes your enemies can be your best friends. That's, that's right. And when it got that exposure, the PMRC had been revealed trying to do, and they couldn't try to do it anymore. And the record companies didn't dare get rid of me, which was to their benefit. I made them $27 billion. I made them more money than the gross domestic product of Luxembourg or Qatar. So uh, it's fortunate for them that they kept me in the business. When I'm reading your book, I was struck by... This became kind of a theme for you, first with, somewhat with John Mellencamp, but then with the country music people like Eddie Raven and Donna Fargo and the folks from Hee Haw, and then disco and 
punk even and rap, you seem to have to gravitate toward musicians that were trying something new or hadn't been selected by the establishment as the next thing. And it became quite pronounced that you felt as though a lot of these people deserved a voice, like the people that Mellencamp spoke for or the country music people, you know, that they were not revered, but they, you know, represented legitimate people. And I was curious if you had done very much thinking about why you thought that way. Well, it's easy. I was a reject as a child. Mm. Nobody would have anything to do with me. My parents didn't have, they really weren't thrilled. You know how you light up when you see a baby? You just light up and you try to get a smile out of the baby. And if this baby smiles at you, that lights you up even further. And when you light up further, the baby lights up further. Mothers particularly go through this. It's part of a duet. That's just a natural part of the growth of a baby, this duet with its mother. I never had that. My dad was called away when I was born. He was drafted. He was 33 years old. He wore glasses. He had a new baby. They didn't care. The military was desperate. It was World War II. Oh, right. And we really win it. So he was shipped off to San Francisco. So I didn't get to see him for three years. And my mother had to take care of the tiny little liquor store that my dad had just created. And, and that was a 12 to 14 hour a day proposition. So my mother wasn't there either. And neither of them, I don't know about my dad, but my mother certainly didn't light up around me. And we never had that kind of essential infant duet. And she put me in the hands of not of babysitters. My mom, who was really smart, did something really dumb. She put me in the hands of cleaning women. Now, cleaning for a babysitter, the baby is the focus of her work. For a cleaning woman, the vacuum cleaner and the rug are the focus of her work. <laughs> so these women locked me in a little windowless corridor. They never bothered to turn on the light. They had one of those wooden folding baby gates. So I was in a cage and I was crawling at that point. So I was very aware of the fact that the hardwood floor, the bare hardwood floor was cold as cold can be. And off in the distance, way off in the distance, was a bay window with the sun. And I loved that bay window and I loved the sun, but I couldn't get anywhere near it. So mm -hmm. I spent my whole life, and by the time I, my mother was willing to release me so that I could play with other kids at the age of four, those other kids only had one use for me. To chase me around the block, to beat me up, to humiliate me, I was a target for them. I was not a playmate. So I never was accepted in groups. And I identify with people who are not accepted. Mm -hmm. And I feel I can work my ass off for them. I love crusading on behalf of people who are, who are legitimate. And as you just implied, superstars are often the voices of a subculture aching to come into being. You know, we all, at, at the age of 11, 12, and 13 years old, our hormones start flowing. We become teenagers. And whether we know it or not, we begin tossing ourselves out of our parental home. And our parents get uncomfortable with this too. We don't even smell good to our parents. And our parents don't smell good to us. And life is very confusing. We think that we have all of these feelings that nobody else has, and we're crazy. And so we keep those feelings to ourselves. Sometimes we don't even articulate them to ourselves. We don't even let them into our consciousness. But we have all of these things we think make, me, make us insane. And then it takes a superstar to make people feel that he, he or she is their tongue, their voice, mm -hmm. and to make 
500 people in an audience or the 5,000 or 50,000 people in an audience realize they are not insane. They share common emotions with tens of millions of other people. They are not lone loonies. Mm -hmm. And that happened with country and Western music, where country and Western was the voice of a subculture that felt humiliated and locked in the ghetto, the ghetto of the Bible Belt. It happened with ZZ Top who were the voice of Texas culture at a time when Texans were humiliated and felt they didn't dare reveal their culture, culture to the rest of America because people would utterly and completely despise them. Mm-hmm. Disco music, which became existed as the voice of the gay community coming out of the closet. So I was lucky enough to be the spokesperson for country and Western music coming out of the closet and trying to go national and international, at least a spokesperson to be named the ambassador of Texas culture to the world by the mayor of Houston in the same month that I was, that I was given the task of being the voice of the gay community, even though I'm straight coming out of the closet. Mm -hmm. Those were astonishing privileges to help a subculture that has had no voice develop its voice and its right to exist. And with John Mellencamp, here's an example of what I'm talking about. One day, John Mellencamp called me. By then, we had a very, very close relationship. It was a very intense relationship. And and I loved that. Herman Hess, the novelist, says that we all, in a dark part of ourselves, have a little closet with 10,000 personalities that we could have become, Hmm. but have never been. So my job, if I was working with John Mellencamp, was to find the personality in that dark, hidden closet that was John Mellencamp. And to keep that person alive inside me so I could have what we today call a simulation of John Mellencamp alive inside my empathic centers at all times. So John called and said, I've just been offered $1.25 million for a Heinz Ketchup commercial. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so $1.25 million was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Oh, how agonizing it is to try to get Heinz Ketchup out of that glass bottle. It's simply <laughs> right. <laughs> no matter what you do. So Heinz Ketchup decided to turn this product deficiency into a product strength. And they used Carly Simon's song, Anticipation, mm-hmm. you know, waiting forever, a half an hour for the ketchup to begin to flow on your hand. <laughs> and the next song they want to use was Hurt So Good. It made total sense from the ketchup marketing point of view. John said, should I take the money? And I said, uh, John, you have to make up your mind. In 15 years, what do you want to be? Do you want to be living off of your investments or do you want to be making music in front of your audience? And John said, I want to be making money in front of my audience. And I said, John, then you have to turn down the catcher commercial. And I explained why you are the voice of the voiceless of those who feel that they are outside the tall walls of the city and that they have been told they are worth nothing. And inside are all the insiders and you are on the outside. And you are the person who raises his fist against those walls and says, I have a right to exist. And you don't just say that on behalf of yourself. You say that on behalf of of hundreds of millions of people who feel the way you do. And if you accept that ketchup commercial money, you will go inside the walls of the establishment. You will be part of the establishment. You will no longer be able to speak. Your audience. So you have to turn down that catch of commercial. And rock and roll in general is about rebellion. 
Mm-hmm. And kids grew a natural period of rebellion from the time they're 12 to the time they're 22, or sometimes to the time they're 31 years old. Uh-huh. Need a voice. And each person who raises his fist in rebellion does it differently. When John Mellencamp is on stage raising his fist in rebellion, he does it in one way. And that one way speaks an entire vocabulary. When Joan Jett goes on stage and she raises her fist, it's an entirely different muscular maneuver. It is an entirely different statement. And it's a statement on behalf of girls who have never felt that they've been allowed power before. And now because their moms are working for the first time, feel that they have a sense of empowerment. And they don't know that that's what makes them confused and feel like they are alone and insane until Joan Jett comes along and says, no, you are not insane. There are tens of millions of others like you, and we are not voices in the wilderness. We are a movement. That's even Billy Joel did that in his songs in which he was furious with his wife. Some of the best songs he ever wrote, like Riding Your Motorcycle in the Rain, mm-hmm. doing all kinds of rebellious things. And we need these voices. We are desperate for voices. Subcultures, look, my what's the subtitle of my book? A Quest for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. Here I was looking for individual soul, like John Mellencamp's soul, like Joan Jett's soul, like Billy Idol's soul. And in the process, I was finding the souls of entire subcultures. And I felt passionately that those subcultures had a right to exist, and they had a right to their voices, that the subculture of the South Bronx that found its voice in rap music. And then the kids in the suburbs, the white kids in the suburbs, who found their voice through rap music. Those subcultures had a right to be. And if you offered me something that was a surefire hit that was already accepted, I turned you down. Mm -hmm. I turned down Bette Midler for a year because I felt that she had already made it and you could get a talking dog to get on the phone and say Bette Midler's name. And any newspaper editor or magazine editor anywhere in the country would drop everything and say, I'll give you a cover if you get me an interview with Bette Midler. A talking dog can handle that. You didn't need me. Mm-hmm. I said no to the Jacksons for four months because I thought they were so big that they didn't need me, that they didn't need a crusader. Again, the talking dog could handle the whole thing. But guess what, Jennifer? I was wrong about both of them. I was wrong about Bette Midler. She was in a period of crisis. She had just come off of The Rose, which was, I don't know if you've ever seen it, an astonishing film about a Janis Joplin-like character played by Bette Midler. And Bette is so brilliant in that piece. She is such a brilliant actress, and she is such a brilliant singer that I can't even explain to you. It, it's a, it, that music leaves a muscular memory that is as powerful as all hell. So she just come off of that. She had signed for another movie by a a director who was a very big name in Hollywood. So this movie was getting headlines all over the place long before it ever came out. And when the movie came out, it was a total and complete flop. And Bette was humiliated. She felt it was the end of her career in film. And she had a nervous breakdown for three years. I should have known this, uh, Jennifer, because I followed everybody's career in the music industry, looking at how the career could be improved or where it was doing. Whatever it was doing right, I learned from. Whatever it was doing wrong, I learned from. And I hadn't realized this about that. How stupid could I have been? And also, the Jacksons were in terrible trouble. As I said, I turned them down for four months. And then one day, their manager called and said, 
The Jacksons are coming into New York City. They want to meet with you. You know, I did not grow up among other kids. They wouldn't have anything to do with me. So I grew up in a bedroom filled with lab rats and guinea pigs and guppies. And guinea pigs, lab rats, and guppies do not teach you the norms of social life. So I had heard one phrase. If you want to be a mensch, you want to be a true man. You want to be a man of honor and integrity. When you say no to somebody, you must give them the courtesy of saying no to their face. So I took the meeting simply because I needed to be a mensch. I needed to be a man of honor. And the minute the door opened, four inches, I saw four guys plastered up against the wall as if they had a 125-mile-per-hour wind tunnel fan on them, blasting them against that wall. And the force that was blasting them against that wall was palpable in the room to me. When the door opened four inches, and when I saw that, I mean, I saw that these are four of the most decent guys I'd ever met in my life. It's remarkable what your eye can discern in a second or two seconds just through body language. And I realized there was no way I could say no to the Jacksons, but I was going to have to say yes, that there was some evil in the room that nobody could articulate. They couldn't even tell me why they were hiring me. They just knew you're supposed to hire a publicist. But I knew that there was something really malevolent going on here, and and I needed to say yes. So yes, I gravitated toward crusades. I gravitated toward creating voices for the voiceless. I gravitated toward giving subcultures a right to exist. I gravitated toward giving stars a right to exist. I gravitated toward finding the gods inside of my stars and introducing them to the self of everyday life. The hello, how are you? Fine, thank you very much, self. So for me, my 17-year scientific expedition into the forces of history and into the forces of the gods inside was one of the most important things as a scientist I could have done. It was my equivalent to Charles Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle, in which he spent five years on a ship as its naturalist, and that was a ship of discovery that was trying to map the entire unknown coast of South America. He had adventures in places like the Galapagos Islands that made it possible for him to come up with his evolutionary theory, natural selection. I had my 17 years in the rock and roll business, going after what I was fascinated by the most at the deepest levels of myself, because my own soul was involved in this, and that is soul ecstatic experience, the gods inside, and how those become the forces of history. And it was the most astonishing and fruitful expedition as a scientist and as a person who loves the gods inside that I could ever possibly have in my life. I want to talk about your writing. And I'm, I'm running out of time here, so I'm going to try and collapse some of uh, these questions together. The thing that was really interesting to me, you've talked about meeting the musician and really understanding what motivated them, where they came from, their story. And this idea, the story idea has become really everywhere now in marketing materials like, oh, you have to you have to tell the story. But you went beyond that. You actually wanted to do the writing of the PR materials, which, you know, you were the owner of a big company, so that wasn't common for that to happen. No, it was terribly uncommon. Nobody else did it. Yeah. Can you tell me what you were going for in the writing that you felt that others couldn't get? Well, I wanted to tell the story of the soul of the artist. John Mellencamp's soul is so powerful that I can't even get it across to you. Just powerful as all hell. Prince's soul was powerful as all hell. And I had a vision from spending my time with those clients of what and how to get them across, of how to tell the story of that soul. 
And much as I could have told it to a writer, I mean, initially I worked with writers mm-hmm. and paid to write bios, but they didn't get it. They didn't get it. I had a complete vision. It was incumbent on me if I was going to allow my publicist to get that vision across to write the thing myself. And you know from reading the book that I had been dedicated to being the most brilliant writer I possibly could be since the age of 12, because when I was 12 years old um, and in eighth grade, one day a girl turned her eyes to me. That had never happened to me before. <laughs> then she made back. That was even more startling. That had never happened before. <laughs> I told my mom that you understand the theory of relativity. And I didn't understand the theory of relativity, but I wasn't going to confess that. <laughs> because the only thing I had going for me, the kids hated me, but they called me the sickly scientist. And that was the only thing I had going for me was my science background at that point, which was getting serious because I was taken off to a meeting with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo. And he spent an hour with me discussing the interpretation of the Doppler shift and Big Bang versus steady state theory of the universe. And then came out and told my mom, you don't have to save for grad school for him. He'll get fellowships in theoretical physics at any school he wants in the country. I'd co-designed a computer that won some science fair awards. I had built my first Boolean algebra machine, a symbolic logic machine. My science was serious stuff by then. So I got on my bike when school was over, and I pedaled down to my library. The librarians literally knew me better than my mother did and said, give me everything you've got on relativity. And I took the books home, and I read them. I needed to understand the theory of relativity by the time my mom put me to sleep at 10 o'clock at night. One was a great big fat book with all equations and just a few words of English on each page. The other was a little skinny book. I started with a big fat book because I had learned at that age that you start with the hardest thing. And if you make it through, even though you don't think you understand a word, you come out understanding something. Well, I had to give up on that at eight o'clock because I only had two hours left. And I turned to the little skinny book, which is by Einstein himself. And in the introduction to that book, it was as if Albert Einstein reached out through the pages, grabbed me by the lapels, put his nose up to mine and said, schmuck, listen up. If you want to be a genius, it's not enough to come up with a theory only seven men in the world can understand. If you want to be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory. Then you have to write it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. So Albert Einstein had given me my marching orders at the age of 12. If I wanted to be an original scientific thinker, which is the only role in life for me, then I was going to have to be a writer and not just a good writer, a great writer a writer's work you could not put down. So I've been off on this writing thing for a long, long time and doing my best at it. But the most important thing is if you have a vision, you better write it yourself Hmm. because nobody else is going to be able to see it the way that you do. And that means you have to be a writer. And I've been working on my writing as a discipline since I was 16. And I edited the editor or art directed the uh, literary magazine at NYU, the Washington Square Review, and we won two National Academy of Poets prizes. So when I first met Michael Jackson, I told him I had a press release to read to him. And uh, we were in Marlon Jackson's pool house, which has one room on the first floor and one room on the second floor. And I'd been hanging out with the brothers at the pool table because we'd been looking at merchandising and stuff. And I've been trying to explain to them that you put on some of the most astonishing shows in the world. And any T-shirt that you sell at a concert has to be one of the most astonishing T-shirts you've ever seen in your life. And, and I heard the screen door open. And I knew Michael was due to come. 
And I had read a thousand articles on Michael and they had all said, Michael is a bubble baby. So if you put your hand out to him, he will shrink away from you in fear. So I walked over to the screen door. And again, this is a ritual that I had been taught when I was 19 years old. If people want you to meet somebody, go over, put out your hand, say, hi, I'm Howard. And the other person will say, hi, I'm whoever it is. So I went to the screen door and I put out my hand and said, hi, I'm Howard. And Michael put out his hand and said, hi, I'm Michael. And I'm perfectly, I mean, hi, I'm Michael. And he put his hand in mine and it wasn't one of those crushing handshakes, but it was a perfectly normal human handshake. But all the stories about Michael had been false. Mm-hmm. And I got a press release to read to you. Michael said, uh, well, why don't we go upstairs? We went up the tiny little stairs and we found ourselves in a room that was filled floor to ceiling with amplifiers and keyboards. So Michael sat down on one amplifier. I sat down on another amplifier and I started to read Michael this press release, which I wrote with this background of studying, writing and trying to be the best writer I possibly could be that had been going on now for 15 or 20 years. And as I started to read with the first sentence, Michael went, oh, he slumped in his seat. And then he went, oh, and he slumped further in his seat. And oh, and he slumped even further. And when I finally reached the end of the press release, Michael said, that's beautiful. Did you write that? Well, of course I had. No one had ever seen the art in my writing before. No one. And Michael saw every bit of it. Michael was the most astonishing, instantiator, living example of awe and wonder. He was awe and wonder incarnate. And it was the most astonishing thing I had ever seen in my life. And that's why if people like Prince and and John Mellencamp are five foot tall, Michael Jackson was 20 foot tall. Because his quality of awe, wonder, and surprise and his commitment to his audience was so far beyond that of any other human being on planet Earth that I had ever seen or ever expected to see that I became a Michael Jackson worshiper for all practical purposes. This was a person who was the gods inside incarnate. He was the first two laws of science that hooked me when I was 10 years old. The truth at any price, including the price of your life, and look at things run under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. The law of courage and the law of wonder. He was those two laws come to life in human form, and it was as if he were an angel. It was as if he were a saint. He was on a level no other human being I'd ever met was. You know, I've worked with with people like Buzz Aldrin, has been a friend for 15 years, and the, the, the former governor of New York State I'm working with, and I'm working who's a Democrat like me, and Newt Gingrich I'm working with, even though I'm a Democrat. So I'm working with all these amazing people Michael was so far beyond them, and it's like he was of different species. Amazing. Well, Howard, I'd love to keep uh, keep you on the phone and, and talk more, but we're out of time. So before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners, like where they can follow your work or get your book or, or anything you'd like for them to be thinking about these days? Well, if you're curious about me and my work, because there are seven books, go to howardbloom.net. If you're curious about following me, then you can follow me on Facebook. That's the best place to follow me. Although my my page is full, you know, they allow you 5,000 friends. So I have a spillover page. So God knows how you get to the spillover page. I really don't know. <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Howard X Bloom. Um, and most important, if you buy the book, you can get it from amazon.com or you can get it from burnsandnoble.com. 
or you can get it. Well, there's a bookstore, uh, bookshop.org, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Bookshop.org, yeah. Yeah, the best place is really Amazon.com. And and if you get to read it, then email me or or send me a message on Facebook because I get all of those messages and tell me what you think of it, even if you hate it. And, and I will, in all probability, reply to you because I am tremendously flattered if you read one of my books and I really do want to hear your opinion. I really enjoyed the book, Howard. Thank you so much for writing it. And thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. You've been wonderful, Jennifer. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.